you said about having hope, and so that inspired me. What I'd like for each of you to do is find one of these cards on the pew near you, <clears throat> somewhere. If you don't have one, then pick one up. But I'd like you to hold it right now, and I think it would be a shame if we affirm this, and we know this, and we believe this. It'd be a shame if we did absolutely nothing different with that conviction this week. But we can trust in God that He will help us. So if you just take that card and hold on to it, I'd like you to to pray with me, okay? Let's pray together as you hold these cards. Father, I ask that you would make it, um, make it, make it your way. Open up a path. I pray that you will give each and every one of us the wisdom and the insight to recognize that when we're in a conversation with someone this week, whether it's a someone we're meeting for the first time or a good friend that we've known forever a family member, a co-worker, just whoever it may be, that whether we use this card or something else, we take this opportunity that you will place before us to invite someone to share in the hope that we have. And Father, we are trusting in you to make that work out. We just want to be your vessels, your witnesses. We want to be your servants because we know that we don't bring people to ourselves or to the church we're not asking them to affirm us but lord we're inviting them to you we're inviting them to taste and see that you are good and so lord i pray that you would give each and every one of us here that opportunity and please help us to go out not anxious but excited about what you will put before us We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to God be the glory. You will have some opportunity this week. Let's let's wait and see. Yeah, I took my jacket off and I said, it's kind of like the Channel 5 weatherman. You know, that means things are going to get serious. And now I'm rolling up my sleeves. Now, I I took the jacket off because it's it's got three buttons on it. And that's, I don't think that's fashionable anymore. And. Y'all know I'm sensitive about my appearance, so I don't want anybody to say anything. Because I may laugh, but secretly I would cry, you know, so I don't want y'all upsetting me. Take a look at uh, Philippians, Philippians 3. We are in the last few weeks of what we are calling the growing season. It's all about spiritual growth. And um, in the traditional church calendar, this is called Palm Sunday. Uh, Next Sunday will be Easter. But we'll get started a little earlier on the resurrection than some because Paul made the resurrection the focus of a lifelong journey in his life. It was something that he wanted to know more about each and every day. All of this growing season is going to culminate on the fifth uh, Sunday of this month, April 30th, and we're going to bookend what we did in January. In January, we talked about the kind of growth and the ways that we were going to get together and talk about that growth. And regardless of what happened, what has happened since then, let's come together on uh, April 30th and encourage one another once again. Here, to me, Philippians 3 gives us the goal of what the growth is, is really aiming for. What does it mean? Because we're saved, but what does it mean to grow if we are saved? 
Philippians 3, starting in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone ever could. Indeed, if others have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. And I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. Well, now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as rubbish, so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ. I want to experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've achieved all of this, or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection, that maturity for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. Let everyone who is spiritually mature agree on these things. And if you disagree on some point, well, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must Hold on to the progress that we've already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. They think only of this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for Him to return as our Savior. He'll take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same power with which He will bring everything under His control. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord I love you. I long to see you, dear friends, for you're my joy, and you are the crown for which I receive. You're the crown which I receive for my work. Paul is warning the hearers of this word about two types of religious extremists. One of them he calls the dogs, the mutilators. 
Those who are so strict that they demand certain rituals and traditions be a part of the salvation process. And the other he's going to call the enemies of the cross because of the way they live their lives, their conduct. The dogs are those who do evil by a strict adherence to traditions. Their confidence is in keeping the rules. Their confidence is in doing the things that are tangible, that are real. But the problem is they think that because of that, they've got the corner on salvation. Now what seems to be happening in the first century is that you have Christ being received by those who come up through the Jewish community, just like Paul. But then what do you do with these people out here who have no Jewish roots? What do you do with them? Well, the solution of some people, because they felt so strongly in what they had as the nation of Israel was, well, we've got to convert them to Israel, and then they will fully be able to follow Christ. Paul had already worked out by this time, and you read it in Galatians 1 and Galatians 2, that that's not necessary. That it's not necessary to go through the customs of Israel to come to Christ. The reason is not because all of that was unimportant or meaningless or a waste of time or dead and gone and nailed to the cross and doesn't matter anymore. It's because the focus becomes less on the grace of God and more on a particular group of people having the exclusive rights to salvation. And that if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to be with us because we're with him. Paul says that's not the way to do it. Meanwhile, on the other hand, this other group that he mentions, they worship their appetite. They brag about shameful things. They're focused on the earthly life. It may be that they're so <coughs> confident in God's grace that they don't, they say it doesn't matter what you do in this life, that... Um, the way you conduct yourself, the way that you eat, the way that you drink, the way that you behave yourself in public or with other people, well, you know, that's just, that's just material, fleshly stuff. All that matters is that I'm right with God and my soul's going to be saved. Paul says neither one of those extremes is acceptable. And you know, that's often the case. Those kind of extremes are not very helpful. Oh, well, that's great. That's ancient history. That's first century. That's all that weird stuff like Gnosticism and Judaism and Judaizers and Phariseeism and all that. But thank God here we are in the 21st century in America and we've gotten beyond such polarized opposites, right? Mm. Here's what I would say we're up against. Two terms that come up quite often. I've been hearing them for decades. Conservatives and liberals. And now, conservatives and liberals in our world operate in all realms of, uh, of human existence and in our, in our experience here in America. You can have conservatives and liberals in church. You can have conservatives and liberals in government. You can have conservatives and liberals in society. That just about covers it all. Sometimes people like to pick and choose. I'm conservative when it comes to this. I'm liberal when it comes to that. Other people say, well, you're just standing in the middle of the road, and those of you that stand in the middle of the road, you know what's going to happen to you. You're going to get run down. 
Some people say, I, and this is, this, is a growing, this is a growing group, and I'm actually kind of encouraged by this. They say, you know what, I'm sick of either one of those. I don't think I want to pick. Okay, good. But you've got to have a better way. When I first started, uh, when I first left this state, and I, I didn't know much about, well, see, the thing is, I, I didn't know much about being a Christian. I just thought you were supposed to do church stuff. And that meant being a Christian. And then when I started to go among the, uh, the, the circles of higher learning, people would say, so on these issues, are you conservative or are you liberal? And I'm like, I, what, does that mean I listen to Rush Limbaugh? I mean, I didn't, know what, I didn't know how to answer some of this stuff. I didn't even know what the issues were. But you had to pick. And I guess then you have a little badge or something like that that, that shows where you stand on all these issues. The funny thing is, you read the Scripture there's nothing about standing on issues. It's all about standing in Jesus Christ. How about that? Now, I, I still, I think it's worth it for us to think, okay, so, so what, what are these conser- conservatives and liberals, these, these polarizing terms? Well, I would say conservatives would describe themselves as being right and being safe. You are conservative. You're going to conserve. You're going to be very cautious. You're going to be, you know, you're going to you're going to play it safe, all right? And then nothing entirely wrong about that. Liberals, uh, if you go back to some of the definition of that over the last 200 years, they're trying to reconcile their faith. This is religious liberals. They're trying to reconcile their faith with the modern age that obviously we've advanced, we've progressed as a people. Well, how does faith fit into that? So we've got to ask questions. We've got to question tradition, which actually, you know what? In the, in, in the restoration movement, that's churches of Christ to, over the last 200 years. That was the whole point, was to question all traditions. So how about that? They start out, I guess, technically as liberals, but now most people would say, well, we're supposed to be conservatives. But what's interesting is how the groups view each other. And I think the conservatives look at liberals and say, you know, conservatives mean being safe, being right. Liberals are those who go too far. That's usually what we mean by it. And liberals would say, well, uh, we want to uh, reconcile faith in the modern age, and we want to question tradition, but conservatives are just self-righteous, fussy right-wingers. And that tends to be the view of one over the other. And so here, with all of this, just like Paul, who's got the dogs on one side who want to trust too much in their own ability to follow the rules, and then you've got the enemies of the cross who on the other side have no moral responsibility, well, what are we supposed to do? Because we hear conservative preaching, and we hear liberal preaching, and what's really interesting is it all seems to be relative. People ask me now, I know the answer now. People say, are you a conservative preacher or a liberal preacher? And my answer is, it depends on where I'm standing. And it depends on who's around me. Sometimes it depends on what state I'm in. I don't mean state of mind. I'm talking about state in the United States of America. It just really depends. Because I am somebody's conservative and I'm somebody else's liberal, okay? I've got no say in the matter. So I think when people ask me that from now on, I'm going to say, I don't know. I'll tell you what. You tell me which one I am, and then I'll just, I'll just play that part. How does that sound? Because when we focus on that too much, we end up with this exhausting, tiresome game of trying to figure out where's the line. I mean, where do you draw the line? 
well, I understand that maybe we need to be more progressive, but if you don't draw the line somewhere, that it's going to be a slippery slope. And you know, I mean, one day we're going to be singing these songs and there are going to be pitch pipes and hand clapping. The next thing you know, we're going to elect a dog as Pope. I mean, come on, it's just going to, you know, where is it going to go? Well, you know, you got to get out of some of that conservatism. You got to open up, you got to see the world, you got to see what's going on out there. Maybe you've drawn the line too far. I, I, you know, this whole question of where you draw the line, maybe you want to draw it very tightly and you want to stay away from the edge. You want to be very careful. In other words, don't approach. That, you know, that's like going to see the Grand Canyon or going up to the top of the Empire State Building. You have those people who will want to walk out to the edge and look down. I've driven all this way to the Grand Canyon. I want to see to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I've gone all the way up to the Empire State Building. I want to go out on the observation deck and I want to look down. And then you have people saying, I'm here. I made it. It's good enough. It'll go in the record book. It's all the same. I don't need to walk out on the edge. Those are your conservatives. Others who are a little more adventurous want to go out and look over it. Where do you draw the line? And I think that's what we get into a lot in church. I know that's what a lot of elders' meetings get consumed with. Can I have an amen from my elders? <laughs> where's the line? And we're all asking that. And sometimes we ask them, where's the line? And the problem is, is wherever we put the line, we wonder, well, could it move? I mean, sometimes conservatives may have put the line so far back that when liberals come in and, and put a new line in, guess what? They may just be putting it back where it was in the first place. They may not be as progressive as they think. Or vice versa, conservatives may put lines where the line is really way out there. Who knows? Paul said that the dogs were obviously drawing lines where no lines needed to be drawn. And the enemies of the cross needed to draw some lines, and they weren't. Okay, so that's the problem then. That's the problem now. What are we going to do? I love this little web series where this guy will tell you all these home improvement tips and everything. And he, and, he, and he goes through all this stuff and he goes, man, you're just frustrated, you know, and you can't get this cut right and it always works, you know, all these little home improvement things. And then what I always love about it is he always stops and he goes, you know, there's got to be a better way. And then the little intro music starts and I love that because I'm like, yes, it's always good to hear that there's a better way. I'm here to tell you there's a better way. And Paul's given us this better way. Notice that in chapter 3, Paul talks about a few things. One, he says, the better way is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, it's going to sound real good and maybe real poetic for me to say, oh, the better way is no conservatives, no liberals. Let's just be with Jesus Christ. Oh, yay, amen. We can all rally around that. Okay, but what do we mean by that? What do we mean by that? What we mean is, he's saying, wait a second, this other business about the line is all about how we manage our religion. He says that we see a new way of following God. We see a way of God that at one time is extremely ancient. It's what God always intended for humanity. And it's what God intends for us into eternity. It is ancient, it is future, it is present. Paul says 
that surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord, knowing about the power of the resurrection. That power of the resurrection is not just a heavenly reward, but it becomes a way of living our lives. That's beyond categories like conservative and liberal. That's beyond concerns about circumcision. That overrides selfish, fleshly indulgence. The resurrection is something you can accept or something you can deny, but you cannot manage, well, how conservative and liberal are you about the resurrection? It either is or it is not. And if it is, it is not just a future reality. What would happen to us if we fully grasped what it means to live in the resurrection? Would that change our lives now? Would that change the goals that we have for our life? Sometimes we think about this at funerals. We mention it. Oh yes, the resurrection. We want to know that everything's going to be okay. But do we understand that the hope that we have, that we will see our loved ones again, the hope that we have, that there's meaning and purpose to life, that shapes an everyday reality for all of us. Paul said that what it did for him, and this is the second point, is that he would count gain as loss. There's a lot of different translations there. It sounds like sometimes Paul is saying, well, you know what, all that Israel Old Testament stuff, Paul never would have said Old Testament, but all that Israel Old Testament stuff, I just watered it up and threw away because it's no good anymore. And we get this idea that Paul is just pitching out old batteries. Do you know anybody that saves batteries? I mean, I know there's hoarders, but when you save dead batteries, you're, you know, there's not a lot of call for that. Uh, That seems kind of sad in a way, holding on to stuff like that. I never know when I'm going to need this styrofoam cup again. Uh, I'm going to reuse these paper napkins. Uh, You know, we live in a disposable culture that gets rid of stuff. Paul's not saying that all of that stuff, and he mentions it all. I grew up, my, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I come out of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a good thing. See, he says that's still worth a lot to be a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Don't forget that. And he says, he says it's all very valuable. He's saying this is not throwaway trash stuff. He says it's extremely valuable. And he believes that. And you read in other places, he cherishes that. He says, but... I will count all of that beneficial, good stuff. I will take that and put that not in the profit category, but I will put that P-R-O-F-I-T, the profit category, but I will put it in the loss category. I know that's, everybody's like, well, why would you do that? That's worth a lot. I know, but I would put it in the loss category so that I can have the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying I'm going to get rid of the, the, the raunchy stuff to follow Christ. I mean, what sense does that make? Well, I tell you what, I'm going to give up all the things in life. I'm going to give up uh, smoking and drinking and you know, dope and everything. You're supposed to give that stuff up anyway. Okay? It's not good for you. Bad thoughts, pornography, anger, all of that. Get rid of that anyway. It's not good for you. 
But when you say that the things that you are, that you cherish, that you're willing to put those in the loss category, I'm talking about the religious things even. Just so you can know the surpassing worth of knowing knowing Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, then you're following Paul's example. And he says, follow me because I'm following Christ. He says, there's a righteousness here that's much more rewarding because it's not based on anything I can do. It's not about enforcing the rules or keeping the rules or keeping the customs or keeping the traditions, feeling that everything has been done just so. It's a righteousness that depends on faith. Sometimes we have a view of religion that is a, a type of etiquette. That if we do things just so, that if the preaching lasts the right amount of time, oh, amen. And if the communion is served just so, oh, amen. And if the songs done are just correctly so, and everything is done and you hear the old phrase, decency and order, but you know, we don't really know what we mean by that. I would say it's more of kind of an etiquette. Then we've done something well. And let me tell you, I'm not knocking that. That can be a good thing. We ought to have some idea of what ought to happen here. What good would it be if you were watching a baseball game and then all of a sudden the, you know, the guy up to bat just says, you know what, I don't have to hit the ball. I'm just running straight to second and then I'm going to come back to home. That's going to count as a home run. Wait, what's going on here? It's madness. There's got to be some expectations. I get that. But our confidence is not in our ability to maintain the proper etiquette. Our confidence is in knowing Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's the better way. And look at what this does then to the extremes. On one extreme, conservative, liberal, dogs, or enemies of the cross, really what you come down to are confidence in our effort and maybe moral responsibility on a far other extreme. Instead of confidence in our effort, worship is by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. What if we evaluated our worship in that way? Rather than, how long did worship last? I don't know. Did we do the right songs? Yeah, I think so. Did everybody seem happy? I guess so. Did everybody seem awake? Well, maybe some of them were. Good, better than 50%. Okay. Did anybody get upset? Oh, no, nobody got upset. Well, then that's a good worship. And I tell you, our evaluation standard just changes. It depends on where you're at. I know countries in the world right now where if they huddle and talk about a good worship, they're going to say, was it a good worship today? Well, no one got arrested or persecuted. Well, then it was a good day, I guess. Maybe. See, Those sort of things that we manage and control, it's all about that line just slipping back and forth and us worrying about it. But what if our standard was the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus? That's not my idea. That's straight out of Philippians. That's what Paul says. He says whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, that's not the point. He said those who worship in spirit, those are the ones who are spiritually circumcised, which means those are the ones that belong to the people of God. Against moral irresponsibility. I mean, you know, I know the fear often is, well, wait a second. If we take away all of these customs and this etiquette, and if we we get rid of all that, then the next thing you know, people are going to go too far. No, because the goal is maturity. The, as Paul calls it, the upward call of God. I can't believe I've missed that phrase for so many years. The upward call of God. Yeah, that's what the best leaders do. It's what the best coaches do. They call us to something better. 
They invite us to a better way. Paul says that Jesus Christ and what you see operating in his life, the things that he taught, the way that he lived, now the power of the resurrection, his obedience, it calls us to something better. Because I'm afraid we're going to settle for a kind of a mediocre Christianity that just says, oh, you know, I put on my time on Sunday. I've done my communion. I'm going to do a few service projects. rest of the week, though, you know, that's me. That's my time. Hey, maturity is growing up and realizing there's something more. A lot of moral irresponsibility is going to be taken care of by that. Not because somebody's always preaching the rules, but because somebody says, you know what, I think I'm going to put away this stuff that doesn't do me or anybody else any good. I'm going to grow up. When we become confident in our own efforts, we hear Paul's language that we need a different kind of righteousness. A righteousness that's not our own. A self-generated righteousness is going to run thin. A self-generated righteousness is going to have a limit. But Paul's talking about a very different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that taps into something more, a righteousness that depends on faith. And when it comes to this moral conduct, the moral code, you know, most of us are shaped by the culture that we come from. We do things maybe because of the regional culture, what we were taught as kids, maybe what we're taught as people in uh, this nation, and this is one of the stresses for a lot of people, is that the moral code seems to be shifting and changing, and we're becoming very anxious because America doesn't stand for what it once used to stand for. Okay, that may be true. And other nations have gone through this as well. And we may be, and here's, here's a word for you. You know what? It might get worse. But where's your citizenship? If our citizenship is in heaven, then we are living right now by a code and by a standard. We're living right now a way of life that is informed by the resurrection ahead of us. And it's not a written code. It's a power. It's it's a goal. It's something we are maturing towards. If you read uh, books, uh, uh, religious books, you might come across the name Brian McLaren. And Brian's been on this quest to, uh, to find something better than fundamentalist Christianity. And it's interesting because people who aren't in fundamentalist Christianity read Brian McLaren's books, and they're like, oh, well, yeah, okay. Uh, but he had, I heard him at a conference, and he said something very interesting years ago. He said that he had a conversation uh, with a leader in an Eastern religion, and I don't even remember what it was, and he said, why is it that Christianity is on the decline worldwide, but your religion seems to be on the rise? And he said, it's because our religion talks about a way of life, the way we ought to live, rather than a group in which you place membership. And then the Eastern teacher said, but now as I understand your Jesus Christ, that's what he was calling people to all along. That's right. And it's time that we heard that. That's what Paul is saying. The better way is the way of Jesus Christ. 
Paul says he'll give up all that inferior stuff, which really isn't that inferior. It's inferior compared to the gospel. But he'll give up all that valuable stuff that becomes inferior stuff. Why? So that I can know Christ personally. Experience his resurrection power. I want to stop right there because here's one of the things I want you to take home with you. There's quite a lot of difference in knowing about someone and knowing someone. My son did a project recently on one of our ancestors, Marion Columbus Bailey. I can tell stories about Marion Columbus Bailey. I can talk all about him now. My son knows a lot of stories about him. There's some entertaining stories. I know about him. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. I never met him. He was my grandfather's grandfather. My grandfather knew him, and his stories rang with that knowledge, with that relationship. Folks, we don't know about Jesus Christ. Our goal is to know Jesus Christ. Because, see, I can never know my grandfather's grandfather because he's dead. And if Jesus Christ is dead, we can, own, we can know about him. But we'll never know him. But thank God, because of this amazing power of the resurrection, he is alive. Which means you and I have the possibility of knowing him. So we know that power, and we become a partner in his suffering. We participate in suffering just like he did because he was obedient to God. And we go all the way with him, even if it means to death itself. And if there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, Paul says, I want to do it. Do we have that same driving passion? That we're going to stop worrying about where people draw lines and religious extremes and worry about this and worry about that, focusing on the past, Focusing on the future, but instead focusing on the resurrection from the dead and saying, I'm going to get in on that by any means possible. Just like Paul says. Keep these thoughts in your heart. Keep these thoughts in your mind. And most importantly, put them to practice every day. And Lord willing, we'll talk about it again next Sunday. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would guide us into more of a knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we will look to examples like Paul and others who show us that pattern of life, that example, that they model the faith for us. And I pray that we'll be willing to model that before others. And the confidence is not in ourselves and not in our knowledge, but it's in our desire to know your son Jesus and to live by that power of the resurrection. Father, I pray that you would bless everyone here. And if any need to respond to your invitation to know that power, I pray that they will be compelled to do so today. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's sing. If you need any encouragement, let us know.